0: The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmoorah.com. They were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed Him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, He began to tell, Jerusalem the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will be condemned they will condemn him to death then they will hand him over to the gentiles and they will mock him spit on him flog him and kill him and he will rise after three days James and John, the son of Zebedee approached him and said teacher we want you to do whatever we ask whatever we ask you What do you want me to do for you, he asked them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with but to sit on my right or left is not mine to give instead it is for those for whom I have been prepared when the ten disciples heard this they began to be ignorant indignant with James and John Jesus called them over and said to them you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles Lord and over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give this life as a ransom for many. Amen. Thank you, Tim.
1: So what kind of person does it take to be someone that changes the world? Uh, perhaps it's wealth. You know, no one's going to argue that uh, people like uh, for, for better or for worse, Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk have certainly changed the world. Perhaps it's intelligence. No one could argue that people like Albert Einstein, Louis Pasteur, um, uh, Marie Curie and Thomas Edison have made their impact for the betterment of the world. Uh, Could it be power or authority or influence? Well, uh, certainly uh, we have uh, lots of evidence to show that people in power certainly can uh, change the world. Uh, Sometimes these three things uh, exist simultaneously. Sometimes it's just one thing in an individual or a group. But if we were to look at each of those, however, we would find that every single one of them has the power to do incredible good or heinous evil. You can take the example of a guy like Fritz Haber, for example. Fritz Haber is a guy that is the most important person in your life that you've never heard of. Uh, he was a chemist uh, a while back in, in the 1900s or so, uh, 1920s. And he developed a fertilizer that is responsible for feeding over 50% of our world today. If it wasn't for Fritz Haber, we would not have all these people in the world being fed in the way that they, that they are However, Fritz Haber was also desperate to show his patriotism to his home country of Germany. So as he invented the, the fertilizer that would feed the world, he also invented a, something called Zyklon B, which was to be used in warfare against enemies. What it ended up becoming was the gas that was used to kill Jewish people in the concentration camps. So here Fritz Haber was a genius. He changed the world for the good. Ironically, he is a Jew. He was a Jew himself. So here his invention of great good also was responsible for at one point killing 6,000 of his own people per day for two years. Or having power can be used for incredible good, but even evil. Genghis Khan was the most successful emperor in history, having uh, the largest empire ever known. Roughly 12 million square miles is what uh, his empire uh, had under him. And he sounded like this. He said, a man's greatest work is to break his enemies, to drive them before him, to take from them all the things that have been theirs, to hear the weeping of those who cherished them, to take their horses between his knees and to press in his arms the most desirable of women. So any way that we look at it, there's incredible power to do good and evil built in usually the same system. However, when Jesus Christ walked onto the scene, he gave us a, a radical paradigm shift of what it means to be a world changer. In his person and in his work, Jesus showed the disciples that there is, uh, that to make a difference in the world, it doesn't involve wealth, it doesn't involve intelligence, and it certainly doesn't involve power. What it takes to change the world is to follow him to be uh, uh, completely others-focused. And now in here, once again, Jesus tells us and shows us that in order to be his disciple, what that means is to follow him and to follow his example and learn from him means living out of ourselves for the good of others and for the glory of God. So we have the text read before us, let's go ahead and dig in. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are called to others-driven discipleship. And that begins uh, first by considering the example of Jesus. Consider the example of Jesus. In verse 32, Mark tells us that Jesus and the disciples went back on the road, but this time Mark gives us a very important detail. They were on the road to Jerusalem. And this is important because of the overarching uh, storyline of the gospel of Mark. And for what is happening in this particular uh, passage here today. Uh, To note specifically that they were heading to Jerusalem builds this anticipation That something is going to happen. This uh, uh, is heightened when it says that Jesus walked ahead of them. Jesus didn't do that. He never walked ahead of them. He always walked beside them. But his eyes are set like flint right now to Jerusalem in order to accomplish the mission that he is called to. And uh, this is noted here. By the disciples in verse 32. It says they were astonished. But those who followed him were afraid. So how is it that they can be both invigorated. And also frightened at the same time. Well if we paid any attention so far. To what the gospel of Mark. Uh, has portrayed the disciples throughout this gospel. We would remember that time and time and time again. The disciples are shown to be dense. They just don't get it. That's perfect timing, by the way. I love it. They're dense. They never seem to get the point, and it's partly because they're so fixated on themselves that they often misunderstand who Jesus is and what he came to do. After everything that they had seen Jesus do, everything that they'd heard him say, They still believed that as the Messiah, he was not a spiritual savior, but he was a political savior. He was going to overtake Rome, and this was going to be the time when the kingdom is restored to the Jewish people. And they're scared, because that means that they're probably going to have to go into battle, and even the most seasoned warriors get nervous over that. Uh, In the last part of verse 32... We have to notice the patience and the kindness of Jesus. Notice he recognizes here their ignorance and their zealous lust, but he doesn't berate them. He doesn't say to them, Guys, like, seriously, like, how many times do I need to tell you this over and over and over and over again? I'm not that kind of king. Rather, in verse 32, taking the 12 aside, it says, He took them aside, and I I love that that word, again. I have that underlined and highlighted in in my text because he's saying this again and again and again. He began to tell them the things that would happen to him. So this is the third time that he would have to set the record straight concerning his mission. There's no sense of judgment. There's no sense of of shame here. They're completely safe and, and comfortable here with Jesus. And he does the same with us, by the way. How many of us have had to learn the same lesson over and over and over and over and over, maybe even over a few more times? Yet Jesus is always there, always welcoming us back, And uh, and telling us not what would happen, but what did happen for us when Jesus made it to Jerusalem. And what Jesus lays out next has far more meaning than the disciples seem to imagine or certainly understood. First, Jesus corrects their understanding of why they're going to Jerusalem. Look in verse 33. Uh, Look, we're going up to Jerusalem, but here's what's going to happen the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, which is unthinkable to a Jew. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. There's not going to be any battle here. There's going to be uh, a some violence, and there's going to be an execution and a resurrection. And this is all about the foreordained plan of God in order to redeem the world from their sins. They might not understand. They might not believe Jesus. But what he has in mind here is fulfilling his mission is to give his life in the stead of sinful humanity. He has resolutely committed himself To his entire existence, everything that he is, is committed to you and me in that way. So that we can have life. And that we can have it abundantly. That we can be forgiven and free to live as we were created to live. Notice also that he lays out the blueprints for being a world changer. Notice it doesn't happen in power. It doesn't happen in prestige. It doesn't happen in intelligence. What does it happen in? It happens in weakness. It happens in brokenness. It happens through sacrifice, through self-denial, and it happens through suffering. You and I are not the sinless son of man. You never, uh, you will never, nor could you ever, suffer and die for the forgiveness of other people. That's Jesus' job. But what Jesus did was pave, pave the way for what it means for us to be world changers, for the good of others and for the glory of God. To make your life's purpose to glorify God by giving your life completely over to the service of of other people. And Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 3 through 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count uh, others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. How countercultural is this? The world doesn't look leadership or influence in this sort of way. This sort of life isn't appealing to the world. It won't make the news, it won't bring in a huge salary, it won't get you noticed on social media, but if we follow the example of Jesus we can make a huge impact for the kingdom of God. God will use us by looking beyond ourselves and being willing to giving up everything for his name and for his gospel's sake. So we need to consider the example of Jesus. But second, we need to know what to expect. Excuse me. We need to know what to expect. When I read this passage, I was truly floored by the patience and kindness of Jesus. I am acutely aware of how quickly my patience is gone when I am in the car And I'm going down 65, and I'm going probably 65. And cars are zooming around me with oncoming traffic. I am, I should say I'm surprised, but I'm not. When instinctively I will say, what are you doing? And I know it's instinctively because there have been some times in her car when something like that has happened and I've heard a little voice behind me. What are you doing? I know uh, how agitated I get, unfortunately, when my children don't move as quickly as I want them to. I am the perfectly timed one after all. They need to move at my pace. So I read this passage and I'm convinced that it would take divine patience to not lose it with James and John here. Think about this, Jesus has just spent the last number of chapters. In real time, teaching, and giving examples, and demonstrating to the disciples what it means to follow him, to uh, think less of yourself, not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less, and to think of people more. He has taught them about the sacrifice that it requires. He's told them three times about his death and resurrection that's going to come, and what happens yet in verse 35. The text says... That James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. Really? Man, I think my head would have exploded if I had been Jesus. This is incredibly presumptuous. How dare these uneducated, smelly fishermen come to the Lord of heaven and earth, the one whom all things were created through, the one whom all of existence uh, is uh, in existence for, and say to him, Jesus, you know what? I think we have the right to... Uh, have you do whatever it is that we want you to do. We think that we have the right for you to be our magic genie. Really. And as ludicrous as that sounds, friends, we do it all the time. To many of us, Jesus is nothing but a divine vending machine. That if we just put our spiritual quarters in the machine and and push a button that we should get whatever we want. And Jesus obviously doesn't fall for this. Verse 36, he kind of plays along with him a little bit. Oh, well, what, do you, what do you want me to do for you? This will come up in the next section next week, by the way. Now, to get the complete picture of who it is that's asking Jesus these preposterous questions, uh, we need to look at the personality profile of this James and John. Jesus had nicknamed them Boanadurus, which means, in English, sons of thunder. These are guys that uh, are kind of hotheads. These are the two guys that when Samaritans mistreated Jesus and the disciples on the road in Samaria, went up to Jesus and said, Jesus, would you mind kindly if, James and John, if John and I could call on heaven to rain down fire and burn all these people alive? And so, here they are. Verse 37, they answered him, uh, Jesus, allow us to sit at your right hand, and at your right and your left in glory. Now, we have to understand the, the mental framework that they are operating in. They had no conceptualization of what it meant, uh, what a resurrection meant for them. In their minds, everything is in the here and now. The kingdom of heaven was going to be an earthly kingdom... And what they're requesting here is saying, Lord, when you finally take over Rome and when you finally uh, beat those Gentiles and the, the kingdom is restored to us, when you sit in your glory, can we sit on the sides of your throne? To sit on the right side was to be in the special place. That's the seat where the son or the heir or the special council would sit. The left would be the next side after that. And do you see what they're doing here? They're going back to to chapter 9. And if you remember in Mark chapter 9, there was that scene where Jesus is walking and they're talking behind him. And and he asked them, well, what were you guys arguing about on, on the way? And what did they say? Well, they were arguing about who would be the greatest. And here these two are still fixated on it, and they want to circumnavigate around the other disciples and go straight to the source. Jesus, who's the greatest? We think it's us. Can you put us on your right or on your left? And they obviously see Jesus as the Messiah, but just like us, they want to claim their wants and desires without giving a thought about the cost. And so Jesus, once again, in a different way this time, Teaches them the cost of discipleship. Look in verse 38. It says, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? And Jesus is right. They, they plainly don't get it here. To them, to drink the cup is to drink the cup of victory. They're raising a glass because the king has won. Baptism reference here is a little more obscure, but we know that baptism literally means to immerse. And so, Jesus said, are you going to immerse yourself in the same sort of thing that I will be? So if his kingdom is coming, they lift the glass of victory. Of course the disciples want to bathe, be immersed in it. It's no wonder then that they, that they answer Jesus in the affirmative in verse 30, uh, 39. We are able, they told him probably somewhat flippantly, but they don't understand what Jesus meant. What Jesus meant was that there was a cost to following him. Verse 39 goes on, Jesus said to them, you know what, you are going to drink the cup that I'm going to drink, and and you are going to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized with. And when Jesus says this of the cup, he is talking about uh, suffering. For Jesus and his person and work, to drink the cup was to bear the full wrath of God on behalf of his people, those who would believe in him. And to, uh, to, for James and John, uh, they would not have to bear the full wrath of God. They wouldn't bear any of the wrath of God, but yet they would give their lives in service to Jesus. James was one of the first martyrs of the church. John, history uh, tradition tells us that they tried to kill John in multiple ways and they couldn't do it. He just survived every attempt. So they banished him off to the island of Patmos, suffering in isolation and exile for the rest of his life. And baptism, again, here is saying that they're going to be immersed into this life of the gospel. Yes, in suffering. But even more so in joy. Look at Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he endured his pain, his suffering, and his shame. Why? For this joy that was going to come from it. And if we follow in him, our shame, our suffering, our pain, we can have joy not in those things, because those things are often terrible, but we can endure them because of the joy that we have before us in Jesus. Jesus prepares us for expectations of a life of discipleship. Through Paul in Acts 14, he tells us it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. In Mark 13.13, you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will will be saved. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it's been granted to you on Christ's behalf that you not only believe in him, but also suffer for him. John fifteen nineteen. if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, uh, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Do you see the pattern? Jesus isn't messing around here. When you sign up for something online... Uh, many of us will see that, uh, that little box at the bottom that says, I have read all of these terms and I agree to them. Um, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you actually read those things? I don't. And I know that I just kind of outed myself as a liar because I do click that I have read these things and I agree to it. But, I mean, come on. Uh, many times we forget to read the fine print of faith though. There, is, there are terms and conditions of being a disciple and one of those is that if we are called to suffer for his name's sake we do it willingly know, knowing that Jesus walks with us through it. That he's been there before. That he can sympathize with us and minister to us and that kind of suffering is going to look different for different people. For many of our brothers and sisters overseas, their churches are burned down. Their pastors are arrested and either jailed or executed. For some of us, it might mean losing family and friends. For some of us, it may mean losing employment or voluntarily uh, quitting our employment for conscience reasons. Some of us may be mocked, ridiculed, or belittled, verbally abused in that way. What does Jesus say to that? Look back in Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said there is no one who has left a house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now and uh, at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecution and eternal life in the age to come. And look what he says in Matthew chapter 5 at the end of the Beatitudes. What does he say? He says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you falsely on my behalf uh, for every, uh, every evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Are you to rejoice in people hurting you in whatever regards that comes? No, but we're to rejoice. Why? Because our reward is great in heaven. And after that truth bomb, now in verse 40, Jesus finally answers their question. He says, you know what, to sit at my right hand or my left hand, that, that's not my choice. That, that, that's not for me to, to give. It's for those who have been prepared. In other words, Jesus is saying, you need to control what you need to control. Take my example, live outside of yourself, expect the good and the bad, and leave, it to the, leave the rest to God. Either way, in the end, we're going to be okay. And so third and finally we need to become who we are become who we are i have been uh, a musician long enough now to know uh, that it is discouraging to dwell on what i am not yet when i started taking guitar lessons at age 11 i wanted to play the guitar like joe perry or from Aerosmith, or Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, or if I could get to the, if I was like the level of Slash and Guns and Roses, man, I th- thought that I would have arrived. And I rarely stopped to consider that there would come a day when that would happen. And I never took time to be content with where I was at at that point. I mean, maybe I couldn't play Black Dog or Dream On. But I could play Mary Had a Little Lamb pretty good for a while. The same is with the drums. I only started playing those uh, shortly after Dave got here. I was able to do a 4-4 beat pretty uh, proficiently quickly. But I still struggle with 3-4 and 6-8. I'm still not yet where I want to be. I've noticed that many of us look at our discipleship in the same exact way. Uh, We're so focused on where we are not yet that we neglect what we already are in Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 41, Mark tells us of the reaction of the disciples to James and John's incredulous question. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant, and who wouldn't here, uh, with James and John. And so looking into the context here of the group dynamics, every commentary that I consulted said that what's going on here is not what I thought was going on here. Uh, I thought that they were just mad at them for their arrogance. How could you do that? How could you think that you're better than us? But the context suggests That they are more upset about the fact that James and John asked Jesus first before they did. It's sort of like little children. Thinking that if they get to ask first, then they're the ones that actually... If there's one cookie left, if they ask first, then they get the cookie. And so they are angry at them here. Yet again, Jesus calls a family meeting in verse 42... And again, don't get discouraged because this is redundant. We often need to hear many things again and again and again and again. Campus Crusade for Christ estimates that it takes an individual an average of seven times to hear the gospel before they believe. That's an average. So a few less, a few more, that is an average. So Jesus gives them this lesson again. He called them over to them and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. So why do you think that Jesus would give them a lesson first about worldly leaders? Because that's exactly what they are trying to be. Are they not trying to lord it over each other? Trying to be first in line? They are jockeying for the, for the second and third most important position in the universe. And Jesus is quick to tell them in verse 43 that that is not what greatness of leadership looks like. He says, but it is not so among you. Now, well, Hang on for just a minute here. There's something very subtle in the English, but not necessarily in the Greek. The tense is in the present. And what Jesus is not telling them is he's not saying, guys, get with the program. You guys have been with me now for almost three years. You know what's going on. You need to get with it. But rather he is saying, guys, this is already true among you. This is yours already. It's already been given to you by the Holy Spirit. So instead of working to to get this, take a hold of it and become what you already are. Under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you are called to greatness. And so instead of chasing after those things that you're not quite yet, Take hold of what you are in Jesus. It's just like the fruit of the Spirit. It's not as if you can say, well I'm going to work on on love and then I hope I get some joy and I hope I get some patience. No. Uh, Paul in Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, in the singular by the way those are all ours now. So we need to tap into what is already ours in Christ. In uh, in verse uh, Uh, Here we see in verse 43 again that Jesus says that you must, whoever wants to be first among you, must be a servant of all. But then notice he goes further, and he says, you will be a slave to all. There's a difference between a servant and a slave in this time. A slave is lower than a servant. And Jesus backs this up by saying in verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In John chapter 15, Jesus said there's no slave that's greater than his master. So we need to follow in our master's footsteps. On your sermon guide, I've inserted a new line at the bottom, which I think is really, really important. Many of us come here on a Sunday and we get encouraged and we get challenged. And then we walk out the door and that's it. We go back into our lives. And so I put a a line on there that says um, what I am going to do, not what I should do. But this is what I'm going to do. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of not intentionally growing in Christ. And so here's your opportunity, right here, right now, to make a commitment to what is one thing that you are going to do this week in living outside yourself. It doesn't have to be earth shattering. It doesn't have to be huge. It can be something small. This week, I'm going to stop watching TV in the afternoon so that I can play with my kids. You know, something small like that. These little habits that we can change. And maybe you're here today and you've never experienced the forgiveness that Jesus freely gives you. And I want you to feel safe this morning to give your life over to him. I'm going to pray here in just a second. And if that's you, uh, if you want to receive Christ today, you can do that. Uh, if you're here with some, someone, make sure you tell them about that if that's what you want to do. Or there's a QR code on your sermon notes there, too, that if you scan that, uh, that will uh, go right to me. And Dave and I would love to help you take your first steps in the faith. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will close out our time in song.